Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse -verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I first off want to thank Tom for standing here on Wednesday night so that I could go see my mom. And I won't talk about it, except that it was not a, uh, a happy trip. It was a tough one. It's been a year. Mom had her massive stroke the day before Halloween last year. So it's been a year now that she's been in hospitals and she's been in rehabs and she's now in a nursing home. She had the stroke one day. My sister found her after eight hours of her sitting on the couch. And then she called 911 and the EMTs came and got her and took her out on a stretcher and she never went home. Everything was left in the house exactly the way it was at that moment. And over the course of the last year, my uh, siblings and I have been boxing things up and starting to prepare the house to sell in the spring. And so I stay at her house when I go down there. And now it's all not mom's house. It's just a big, empty house full of stuff. And so... Uh, there's that sadness, and then I go see mom in the nursing home, and there's that sadness, but the good news is mom, even though she's lost her short-term memory, her long-term memories are happy memories, so she's kind of stuck in happy places, and sometimes she takes flights of fancy and tells me stories that I know aren't true, but they're really amusing. <laughs> I know there's no way, but uh, she's stuck in a happy place. So thank you, Tom, for letting me go and do that. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are continuing through chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians this morning. We have been working our way verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. I want to thank the folks who have come to visit this morning. I hope you enjoy your morning. Hope that everybody treats you well. If anybody gives you a bad time, let me know. And we'll have Jean, too, take him out into the parking lot. Why do I have to do it? Because I'm not doing it. So, so far in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, we have seen Paul yet again defend his apostleship. Paul has to defend his apostleship repeatedly. Because after all, he is not one of the original 12 who walked and talked with Jesus during Jesus' three and a half year ministry on planet Earth. He was converted after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and he was someone who was persecuting the church. And so among the Jews, among the folks who knew stories about Saul of Tarsus, they found it really remarkable and sometimes unbelievable to believe that Paul was now preaching Christ after he had persecuted those who were following Christ. So Paul has to, everywhere he goes, he has to defend the fact that he's an apostle, and that's how chapter 9 began. From there, he laid out a principle, a principle that we talked about last week. 
I will say this again. This is my standard disclaimer. I understand that when we talk about giving, it's real easy for folks to think, well, Jim's talking about giving because he's trying to pick my pocket. Jim's trying to get into my wallet. He's trying to get more money for the church. It just so happens to be the topic in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And that's one of the advantages of doing verse by verse preaching through a, a book of the Bible is that we don't get to skip anything. And Paul did lay out a principle in the first part of chapter 9. And the principle is, and we're going to see it again this morning, the principle is that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel, should make their living from the gospel. And then he even cites the law, that the law said you're not going to muzzle the ox who treads out the corn. And he asked the question, well, God didn't write that for oxen, did he? They don't read. They don't read. <laughs> so it's not for the oxen. It is for, it's for our sake that God wrote that so that we understand that the one who plants and the one who threshes and the one who does the work does all that in the hope that they will partake of the work that they have put in. And so Paul concludes that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And then Paul does what we see him do repeatedly when talking to the church at Corinth. He says, even though that is a right, even though I have the right to take remuneration from you, even though I have the right to expect that you will care for my physical needs. After all, if I have sowed into you my spiritual things, is it a big deal if I reap from you carnal things, earthly things? And having laid out that principle, he says, but I won't take anything from the church at Corinth because in Corinth, there were a great many people and a great many temples and a great many priests and a great many foreign gods. And those priests were all in it for the money. And Paul did not want to be thought of as somebody who was selling the gospel. He didn't want anybody to believe that he was in the ministry to make money off the people in Corinth. However, as we looked at last week, the reason that he was able to give the gospel freely in Corinth was because he robbed, that's his language, he robbed other churches. There were other churches like the church at Philippi who brought to his needs and necessity and brought him gifts over and over. So it was because other churches supplied for his necessities that he was able to supply the gospel for free in Corinth. And then at the end of the second letter to the Corinthians, last week we looked at Paul saying, you didn't fall behind any of the other churches except in this one thing, and that one thing was, I was no burden to you. And then Paul says, forgive me this wrong. So the one thing that Paul sort of brags about and boasts about, you are going to see the boast again here in chapter 9, he boasts about the fact that he did not lay any kind of burden on the people in Corinth so that the gospel would go forward freely. But then by the time he was late in his correspondence to Corinth, he realized that they fell behind the other churches in that he never taught them to properly give. Now I have to say one thing because there's a couple of visitors here. 
Here at GCA, we don't pass a plate. We don't take up an offering. I'm not saying all of this because you've just walked through the door and now I'm trying to get you to give. We have a box over here that people give into freely because I really am convinced of grace, 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 grace. And whereas the law required 10%, 30% giving, tithing, gifts and offerings on top of the 30%, even though the law required all that, you don't find any of that in the New Testament. Instead, you find Paul saying, every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. And that's the standard that we hold here. I don't know what anybody gives. I don't care what anybody gives. We have managed for 15 years to be financially stable through grace giving. And I am convinced of and believe in grace giving. There, I've said that to let our visitors off the hook. Because they were sitting there thinking, what's this guy going after? He's talking about giving. He's after my wallet. I'm not. So, Paul has laid out a principle They that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. He said, but not me. I'm going to provide the gospel freely here in Corinth. He didn't want to be like the other pagan priests in Corinth who were in it for the money. But then he admits that there are people who have this right, who have this power over the people in Corinth, over the church in Corinth. They do have the right to expect that the church is going to care for them. And as I said last week, Peter came to Corinth, and they treated him fine, took care of everything he needed. He brought along a believing wife, apparently, and they provided everything. And so Paul's question was, is that true for others? Is it true for apostles, but not true for me? Me and Barnabas, are we the only ones who don't have the right to stop working and just make our living from the gospel? Is it a different deal for me? And then having made his argument, he says, all right, because I want you to understand the things of Christ, I do not want you to give me your money. Don't give me food. Don't give me clothing. I'm going to work as a tent maker. I'm going to pay my own way. And then said, forgive me this wrong. Now, with that principle in mind, I'm saying all this because I want to remind you of everything we learned last week. Because with this principle in mind, Paul is now going to expand it and say, not only am I willing to not take any kind of remuneration so that the gospel goes out freely, but I'm willing to make myself the servant of all men. Whether they're under the law, I'm willing to be like someone who's under the law. If they are without law, I'm willing to be like somebody without law. Whatever state I meet people in, I'm willing to be like them so that the gospel does not give any offense and so that I and my personality does not offend anybody because I want the gospel to go forward freely. So Paul's really going to expand it to way past just not taking any kind of remuneration for his preaching, but also being like whoever the people groups are that he's among at the time. And then he's going to wrap up the chapter by saying, I'm serious about this. I am willing to give my life. I am willing to run this race like somebody who is running to win. 
because only one person gets to win a race. Despite the participation trophies that we get so often in school these days, Paul's thinking was, in Olympic games, in Olympic running, only one person won, even though everybody ran. So I'm going to run like somebody who's out to win. So that's all of chapter 9. There, I've, I've just kind of summarized chapter 9 for you. And now we're going to read it and discuss the details. That was indeed all introduction. Let's start right at chapter 9, verse 1. And we will read up to the place where we left off last week, which I believe is uh, verse 16. Paul starts with, am I not free? Hold on to that because he's going to come back to it. He's going to come back to, I am free from all men. Remember, he's already said to the Corinthians, I don't care about your judgment of me. I don't care about any man's judgment of me. In fact, I don't even judge my own self. I am free from everybody. And then he's going to say, but I make myself the servant of everybody. So he starts out with, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal, you are the signet, the proof of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, my defense to those who examine me is this Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter. Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit from it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these very same things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned for oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share this right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple 
and those who attend regularly at the altar have their share with the altar. So also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things that it may be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. Okay, so that's where we got to last week. Now we have to talk about this idea of boasting. Paul uses the word boasting both in a positive and a negative context. He writes to them, your boasting is not good. And yet at the same time, he talks about boasting in the Lord. So there's good boasting and there's bad boasting. In a moment, he's going to say, if I preach the gospel There's nothing in that process that I can boast about because God picked me, Christ assigned me, I've been given a job to do, and so there's nothing there for me to boast about. But what can I boast about? I can boast that even though I have the right to receive some remuneration from you all, I do not take any of that from you all so that the gospel can go forward freely. That I can boast in. Paul is clear that the reason that he is not going to take any money from the church at Corinth is so that no man can make his boasting empty, make his boasting vain. Nobody can say, you know, Paul said that he was going to bring the gospel freely, but you know how much money he's really made at it? And so he doesn't want any man to be able to make his boast an empty boast. So he's going to use the word boast twice. In this verse, he's saying, my boast in the Lord is that I give the gospel away freely and I don't want any man to make my boast empty. But the actual preaching of the gospel, I got nothing to boast about. Here's what he says. For if I preach the gospel, let's talk about that word for just a moment. Are you familiar with the Greek word euangelion? Euangelion is the word that is translated gospel. The EU, like the beginning of eulogy, eulogia, good words. Okay, the EU means good. And so good news is euangelion. The word that Paul used here is euangelizo, which actually migrated into the English language as evangelist. It wasn't really translated as much as it just moved into our language. So when Paul uses the single Greek word euangelizo, he's saying doing the work of an evangelist, which means preaching the good news. So what does a euangelizo do? He's the one who publishes the euangelion. In our language, in English, those two words don't have that same unity. But in the Greek language, it's obvious that what an evangelist does is preach the evangel. That's why he's an evangelist. But in our language, it says preach, an evangelist, and you think of, well, he's a preacher, but he's an evangelist. 
They're not two different things. In the Greek language, they're one thing. They're the person who publishes the good news. So Paul says, if I preach the good news, I preach the gospel, well, then I have nothing to boast of. Why? Because I'm under compulsion for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Okay, now at the end of this, Paul's going to even go so far as to say, I worry that in preaching to others, I myself might be a castaway. So he's really going to be serious about this. I am under a compulsion. I am under a directive from God himself. Christ himself caught me on the Damascus road as I was walking. A bright light shined down from heaven. A voice said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I was blinded. And then I was told that I had to go into the city, the very city that I was going to persecute Christians. I had to go into the city and find a man, a Christian, who God prepared and said, Saul's coming to see you. And then the man argued with him and said, are you familiar with Saul? Do you know who Saul is? He kills Christians. And Christ said, yeah, and he's my chosen vessel. And I'm going to show him what great things he has to suffer for my name's sake. For the preaching of the gospel. So he prayed over Paul and Paul received his sight. So Paul understood through all of those circumstances that Christ had chosen him as a chosen vessel to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And having been given that commission, having that responsibility laid on him, he said, I'm only doing what Christ has told me to do. I got nothing to boast about. There is nothing for me to brag about here. I'm doing exactly what I was assigned to do. I don't want to be blind again. And I don't want to be blind again. (laughs) And woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Now remember this is Saul, who could brag at one point that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that as touching the law, blameless, and that he was steeped in the Old Testament, studied at the feet of Gamaliel, knew the scriptures. And so he understands from the scriptures that when God gives an assignment, like when he gave the law to Israel, he said to Israel, you're going to do this. He did not ask. God did not check with anybody. Hey, here's 613 rules. Here's 10 commandments. How do you feel about this? God said, this is my law, these are the rules, these are the standards, these are the ordinances, do them. And they all said, okay, everything God has said we're going to do. And God added, and if you don't do it, I'm going to drive you out of your land, and I'm bring wild animals, I'm going to bring your enemies down on you, and I'm going to kill all of you. And so God's real serious about laying a standard on people and saying, this is how it's going to be. And Paul knew all that. He's steeped in Old Testament theology. He knows the character of God. He knows what God is like when he says, your mind do this. So Paul could say, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Think about it logically. If you're on your way to a neighboring city, We're here in Smyrna, so you're on your way to Laverne. Suddenly a bright light shines from heaven, knocks you down. 
calls you by name. A few minutes ago when Leon came up to do our scripture and prayer, immediately Tim's son looked up and went, Leon, did you, did you hear that? <laughs> Called him by name. Now imagine Leon's on his way to Laverne. Suddenly a bright light comes down from heaven, knocks him down and says, Leon, Leon. What's Leon's natural response? Is he going to go, I don't have time for this. I got things to do, man. I'm busy. No, he's naturally going to say, what do you need from me, Lord? Even if I don't know who you are and don't know much about you, I know this. I know you sent a bright light down from heaven and you knocked me down on the ground and you blinded me. So whatever you want from me, I'm doing it. Well, that was Paul's attitude. That whatever Christ needed from him, he was going to do it with all his heart, with all his commitment. Because woe to him if he didn't preach the gospel. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily or willingly, then I have a reward. He's going to tell you in a moment what he's talking about, the reward. But if it is against my will, even if I am not willing to preach, even if Christ has laid this on me and I'm not doing it voluntarily, even if against my will, I still have a stewardship entrusted to me. So I got no choice. I'm either going to do it willingly or unwillingly. But I'm going to do it. Now, this is something that I have said over and over again. We are convinced by the Bible that God picks and chooses people. The word elect is all the way through the Bible. The word predestination returns time and time again in the Bible. And we are convinced that whether it's God choosing Israel or whether it's God choosing people or whether it's writing names in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, all of these things the Bible says, and we are convinced that God picks and chooses people. So let's say, for instance, that God has decided to pick or choose. We'll pick on John, too, because he's here. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Once God has picked or chosen you, have you had Any desire to quit doing it? I mean, you're here every Sunday. Come on. It gets tiring. You lead songs. You get an old, bald, scar-bellied preacher yelling at you. After a while, it just gets old, right? So you do it willingly. Yeah. Anybody here ever want to say they've reached the point of being unwilling? Yeah. That's me. Unwilling. And yet you're sitting here. (laughs) Nevertheless, you're sitting in church listening to an old scar-bellied preacher yell at you. Why? Because whether it's willing or whether it's unwilling, a dispensation of the gospel has been given to you. And you can't escape it. Because it's been given to you by the God who chooses people specifically, sent his son to die for those people who sets his Holy Spirit in those people, governing their thoughts and their behavior, and even when they reach the 
point where their flesh rises up and they're no longer willing, the truth is you simply cannot outbox God. He's going to win. And so willing or unwilling, here you are. He has chosen you because he's faithful. And that's got to be true. Are you familiar with the word axiomatic? That's yes. eh, a big English word. Axiomatic simply means something that proves itself. You don't have to prove it. It just proves itself. I don't have to prove to you that the sun is yellow and comes up once a day. I don't have to prove that. It happens anyway. Okay, that's axiomatic. Well, what you're saying is that uh, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's hold on us, is axiomatic. You just look at your life. You look at your natural rebellion. You look at the way that you naturally are after the flesh. And yet God's got such a firm hold on you that even your rebellion can't change the relationship. And you ought to be really thankful that's true. Because if he left it up to you to any degree... If he left it up to you to keep the relationship going, you'd blow it. You'd mess it up. It's part of the orderly arrangement of the universe. It just is. It has to be that way. I like it when I reach theological corners that I've painted myself into, where I say, it has to be that way. It can't be any other way. Because, again, to whatever degree it's up to me, I'm going to mess it up. And I'm going to mention my mom again. When I went to see her, I went to see her Tuesday night. There was a uh, fall family spectacular there at the nursing home. All the nurses brought in their children who were all dressed up for Halloween. And so the, the residents there, or as my mom calls them, the inmates there, <laughs> got to... <laughs> got to see all the dressed up kids so that was really positive so then I went back Wednesday and I brought her by the way a quarter pounder with cheese and an ice mocha and she was out of her mind she was so happy to not have to eat the food that was so I give her that so I'm sitting in the lunchroom with her and she's got her three friends with her and my mom's gotten kind of hard of hearing and the other women at her table speak quietly So they all pretend they're having a conversation because they can't hear each other. But anyway, I know this is just naturally funny, but it's also kind of tragic. And so, (laughs) spoken like a trooper. And so when I went in the front door of the facility that morning, I saw some people who were leaving the facility and they were carrying a little PA with them. And I thought, oh, there was a musician here this morning. Usually that's in the afternoon, but okay, they they must have had a musician. Well, I sit down with mom. Mom's happy to talk to somebody who can hear her. And she says to me, there was a preacher here this morning. Oh, I think I saw him at the door. He was leaving as I was coming in. Yes, his wife played piano, and I said, oh, was she good? And mom said, no. And then, and I said, what do you remember from the sermon? Now, this is my mother, who sat here at GCA for years. 
My mom was a vital part of getting us up and running here at GCA. And uh, I said, what was the sermon about? And she said, oh, oh, didn't like it. I said, yeah, what do you remember from it? And she says, hellfire. <laughs> he preached on hellfire. I said, really? All these people who are, for lack of a better word, right at death's door, all you can give them is threats of hellfire? You can't tell them about how lovely Jesus is or the grace of God or salvation through his holy name? Yeah, hellfire? She says, oh, it gets worse. <laughs> what else did he talk about? And she says, uh, he said that if you have faith, you can do anything. That's a real common idea, isn't it? I knew immediately what kind of guy this was. This was a word of faith guy who had shown up, put up his little stand in his PA and was telling people, if you've got faith enough, if you've got faith, you can do anything to a bunch of people who can't do anything. So what can they conclude from his message? I have no faith. Joni got it right. All he can tell them is despair. If you had faith, you'd get up. You'd get out of that wheelchair. You wouldn't be sick. You'd be, if you had faith, none of this would be happening to you all. But since you're all here and nobody's getting any better, you must not have any faith. And you know what the end result of that is? Hellfire. What bad news. There's no gospel in that. So mom, fortunately, mom who's been raised on good theology, in fact, while I was in the empty house, I opened a closet, and there was a great big shoebox, and I took the shoebox down to see what was in it, and it was full of GCA CDs and, and tapes and everything, and all stuff that mom has listened to. So she's got her theology pretty well together, and I was just grateful that at this point in her life, how many times have you heard me say, get your theology right before you need it? I was just glad that she knew that Christ had her, that God had chosen her, and that the gospel had come to her before she needed it. Now that she's at a point where her memory slips and where, where she's not always real firm, now is the time she needs to know that Christ has got her, that Christ has got her by the hand. And, and I felt sorry for all the people in the room who had to hear all that bad news if they could, in fact, ingest that and understand what this preacher was saying to them. Paul preached good news to people. Paul preached good news to people who had been under the bondage of the law who had to do the things that God said they had to do by the law. And a miss is as good as a mile. And under the law, all it did was curse people. And then Jesus came along, and Jesus took our sin debt. He paid for our sinfulness completely. And his righteousness is imputed to our account so that we can stand before the God of ages, the one who has encased himself in a light that no man approaches. We get to stand before that God and be accepted because of what Christ did. And that's good news. You can hear how good that would be to people who have been under bondage all their lives. And Jesus himself said it. Whom the Lord sets free, who the Son sets free, is free indeed. And so Paul could proclaim that kind of freedom. I am completely free 
And because I'm so free, I also have a dispensation, a a requirement laid on me that I have to preach the gospel. By the way, isn't that exactly how Christians ought to feel? I've got good news. I can't wait to tell you. I've got good news. Sit down. I got something to tell you. It's good news. If I do this thing voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship that's entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So his right in the gospel is that he make his living from the gospel. But then I'm not going to make full use of that right because I want to preach the gospel, offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Verse 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all men that I might win the more. That's the Greek word for gain, that I might increase the numbers within the church, that I might gain the more to Christ. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Okay, wait a minute. Because <laughs> we got to get some context here. I find this amusing, as you can tell by my snickering. Paul said that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He said, as concerning Judaism, a Pharisee, as touching the law, blameless. This is a guy who was a Jew. And now he's saying, when I'm among the Jews, I act like a Jew. (laughs) What happened? Something changed. Up until then, the law had said, especially to him, being a Pharisee, especially following the dictates of the law, he knew that he had to do absolutely everything that the law required of him. Now he's about to say, when I'm around people who aren't in the law, I'm like one without a law. What happened to him? Something changed from the old covenant of do these things, hold these standards, follow the law, the old covenant, and then Christ died And the new covenant blood was spilled. The very blood that he said on the night of his betrayal, this wine is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. The new covenant went into effect as he was on the cross and it changed everything. And it changed it so dramatically that Paul could say, yeah, when I'm with the Jews, I act like a Jew. When I'm around people who don't have law, I'm like one without law. That's a radical change. That's a huge change from what he was to what he is. Now he can say, I'm free. Free, free, free. No man is going to judge me. I'm not in bondage to anybody. I don't even judge my own self. That's everything the law required. The law required that you get up every day and figure out, am I still in the law? Am I still doing everything I can? And now Paul's declaring It's different. It's better. It's changed. For though I am free from 
all men. I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win or gain the Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Did you get that? I became like one who's under the law, though I'm not really under the law, so that I could save those that are under the law. Okay, this is a further extension of the entire weaker conscience, weaker brother concept. Remember he said, I've got the right, I'm free, I can eat meat that's sacrificed to an idol. Because I know that an idol is nothing, and therefore, if I've got some good food in front of me, I'm going to eat it. I'm not going to ask any questions for conscience sake. I'm just going to eat it, because it's food and an idol is nothing. But, if I'm sitting with someone with a weak conscience, who knows this is food sacrificed to an idol, if I then, in my freedom, eat that food, their conscience is going to be affected because they know this food was sacrificed to an idol and I ate it. And so they're going to eat it and offend their own conscience. And now I've caused them to sin. I've caused them to rebel against their own conscience. So his conclusion is, when I'm with people who don't eat meat sacrificed to, a, to an idol, well, then I won't eat it. But I will eat it by myself when I'm free. I got the freedom to do whatever I allow. There's no law against me. Not everything is profitable. Not everything's good. But there's no law against me. So I'm going to allow myself to eat a steak because that's what I found in front of me. But I'm not going to eat it in front of people who are offended by that. Okay, so now he said, when I'm among the Jews, I act like I'm a Jew I act like one who's under the law, even though I'm not under the law. You want to see an example of it? Let's take a look at an example. Sure we do, Jim. Okay, good. Go to the book of Acts. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 9 and go to the book of Acts. Acts 21. Let's go there. This is a fascinating passage that has caused a great deal of commentary mishmash and all kinds of uh, theological arm twisting, trying to get around what Paul does here. Paul has explained it in the Corinthian letter. We're going to see him act like a Jew here. But there are people who don't like that he act like a Jew here. Because there are people who say, no, this is Paul. He's free from the law. He would never put himself under the law. He's the one who in Galatia said about the Judaizers that he didn't even put up with them for an hour. So Paul would never do that, but he does. I heard a preacher one time say that the reason that Paul was put into shackles, into chains, and led to Rome to be tried was because of this, that God changed his mind about Paul. And when he saw that Paul was willing to do this and not hold that standard of free from the law, 
that God was so upset he took him to Jerusalem and put him in prison. Makes no sense, considering that Paul was prophesied that he was going to go to Rome. But Paul here is going to be just like those that are under the law. Starting at verse 15. We're in chapter 21, verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, with whom we were to lodge. And when we came to Jerusalem, the brethren greeted us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to see James, and all the elders were present. That's the elders of the church. That's Peter, John, and James. So after he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are zealous for the law. Now, when we were reading through the book of Hebrews, I really kept emphasizing that this was a time in history unlike any other time in history. This was the first century transition from 1400 years of the law to freedom in Christ. And if you were a Jew whose family, whose heritage, whose generations had been keeping the law, and then you hear about Christ, the Jewish Messiah, you're not going to automatically just say, well, that's it, no more law for me. There was a transition period, which is why the writer of Hebrews had to write the letter of Hebrews, saying there's nothing to go back to. There is no salvation in the law. But this was a transition period where you could find people who both believed in Christ as the Jewish Messiah, but they were also zealous for the law. So what does Paul do about it? Paul might do What he does in Galatia, he might go into all of those Jews who are zealous for the law, and he's going to say, no more law, I won't have it, I won't stand for it for an hour, no more law, it's all Christ, it's a done deal. He doesn't do any of that. He's among the Jews that are zealous for the law, so he acts like a Jew who's zealous for the law. Now remember again, I know I have to keep adding bits and pieces to your thinking here, but remember again, Paul dealing with Timothy and Titus. Titus was a Gentile. And because he was a Gentile, Paul, who was firmly against making the Gentiles keep the law, Paul, who was firmly against circumcising, which is a sign of the Old Covenant, firmly against circumcising Gentiles. So with Titus, he did not circumcise Titus. But Timothy who had not been circumcised so that he couldn't go into the temple, had a Jewish mother, which made him Jewish by heritage, so Paul circumcised him. Okay, now that's different. Here's Paul, who was said in Galatia to all these Gentiles, no circumcision. And yet he says to Timothy, be circumcised so I can take you into the temple. Why? Because he had a Jewish mother. So, 
Paul is not adamant among the Jews that they make the transition from law to grace instantaneously. He knows this takes time. He knows it takes time for people to get their theology right, to get their thinking right. Some, like him, are going to be radically changed, radically free. But some are going to have to come along in their freedom, which is the same way today. When you tell people about Christ, they're not automatically just going to know everything you know. They're not going to have the freedom you have. They're going to have to be brought along in Christ. Some of you know that it's taken you years to start getting your theology together. Well, it's the same thing back then. It took time for people to make the transition from law to Christ. So here are thousands of people who are believing in the Messiah and zealous for the law. And what does Paul do? Verse 21. They have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to our customs. Okay, first off, that's not completely true because Paul never tells Jews, don't be circumcised. He tells Gentiles, don't be circumcised. But as far as the Abrahamic covenant, the sign and seal of which is circumcision, he still tells Jews, be circumcised. But what they've heard about him is that he's telling Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That's that same word, apostasia. That's, that's the word for depart. You're telling people, depart from Moses. So what's it going to be here, Paul? Is that your message for the Jewish people? Well, here's their advice. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now, under a vow in the Old Testament was going to require shaving their heads. It was going to require spending days in the temple. It was going to require sacrificing an animal. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them, purify yourself. That's ritual Old Testament purification. Purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you. And that you yourself walk orderly, keeping the law. At which point Paul should have said, no, no law against me. I'm free from all men. He didn't say that. He takes their advice. Because he's among the Jews who are under the law. Even though he's not under the law, he acts like one who's under the law so that he doesn't give offense to those who are under the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. By the way, did Paul keep that rule? No. He wrote later, we have the freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But the ones in Jerusalem said, here's our decision. You should tell them to refrain from meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul realized that would put a guilty conscience on them. So he didn't do it. 
he teaches the exact opposite of it. But while he's among the Jews, he's going to act like a Jew. Abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Okay, now I thought the Old Testament sacrifices all foreshadowed and predicted the coming of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. Now that Christ has come, he should not engage in sacrifice anymore. But he did. Why? Because he can be all things to all men. He has a completely clear conscience to be all things before all men that he may win the more to Christ. Go back to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 9, verse 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those who are under the law. And then amazingly, to those who are without law, that'd be the Gentiles. The Gentiles are not under the Moses covenant. When I'm among the Gentiles, when I'm with those who are without law, he doesn't lay the law on them. He tells them about Christ and about freedom and about grace But to those who are without law, I became like one without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Okay, this word that he's using here, law, is the word nomos. It means the teaching. There's the teaching of Moses, which was imposed on Israel. But then there's the teaching of Christ, which he calls the law of Christ. So he says, it's not that I am antinomian. It is not that I am without nomos. It's not that I am against law. I am under law, but not under Moses. I'm under Christ. You want to know what the law of Christ looks like? Turn to Galatians 6 for a minute. Because this is a phrase that he uses a couple of times. Galatians 6, right at the top of the chapter. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself lest you too be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so let's think about what the law of Christ means. The Pharisees asked him once, what's the great command? They expected one of the ten. They expected that he would go to the Ten Commandments and give them the great one. This is the important one. You'll have no other gods before me. Or maybe remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Again, a sign of the old covenant. Maybe he'd give them one of those. He didn't go to any of the ten. Instead, he said, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the great commandment. And the second is like it, 
You love your neighbor as yourself. And so he created a new standard that had nothing to do with the ten. He, as the new lawgiver, said, this is the law that is important. This is my teaching. This is my law. Paul picks it up and says, care for one another. Lift each other up. Carry one another's burdens. And in that way, you fulfill the law of Christ. It has nothing to do with Moses. But Paul could argue, it's not that I'm unrestricted. It's not that I have so much freedom that I can just run willy-nilly through this life sinning all the more. It's that I am under a command. I am under a directive to preach the good news. And I am under the teaching of Christ. And the teaching of Christ is what modifies my behavior and is what leads me to do the things that I'm doing. I'm not under Moses, but I'm not lawless. I'm under the new lawgiver, who is exactly who we're all under. For instance, if I say to Tom, I'm going to pick on Tom, because I'm going to say something questionable in a moment. And so I I need somebody I can pick on I know is easy target. target. (laughs) If I say to Tom, don't commit adultery, that's the law of Moses. That's the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. And it's right. It's true. Don't commit adultery. Now, when the new covenant goes into effect, are suddenly all the adultery laws done away with? Is it okay now for Tom to go ahead and commit adultery? No, because there's a new covenant, the New Testament in Christ's blood, but it includes new teaching that includes don't commit adultery. The difference is Instead of it being an external rule that's written in stone that says don't commit adultery, without the inhabitation of the Spirit of God giving you the ability to actually do what the law requires, instead now under the new covenant you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you governing your behavior and directing you toward the things of Christ and I don't need to yell at Tom don't commit adultery because he loves God enough And he loves his neighbor enough that he's just naturally going to fulfill the law of Christ. That's very, very different than the law of Moses. The law of Moses says, don't, 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 don't. And then it follows it with wrong, 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 wrong. And it can't ever bend down to help you. All it can do is condemn you. Curse, 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 curse. That's all you get out of the law. And I'm amazed at the number of preachers who are standing in pulpits preaching law to people. I don't get it. Because James tells us that if you miss the law in any one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. Because the law is a total sum game. You either do it constantly, perfectly, completely from the day you're born till the day you die, or you're cursed. Those are the options. Why would you preach that to anybody? Instead, you preach the sufficiency of Christ and what he has accomplished and our salvation in Christ and our redemption in Christ and that his righteousness is imputed ultimately to our account that through Christ we are called, we are justified, we are glorified. This is all Bible language. And so as a result of knowing everything that Christ has done for us, we long to fulfill the law of Christ 
which is love God and love your brother. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, we're nearly done. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of the gospel. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Okay, that's a truism. The starter gun goes off, everybody starts running. Unless somebody falls down, they're running. If you've gone through the training, you've gone through the trouble, you've gone through the coaches, you've gone through everything else, if you're standing there at the starting line, when it's time to run, everybody runs. Don't you know that those who run a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Only one's the winner. Only one crosses the finish line first, which means that all those that are running are running for all they're worth because they want to be the first one. Because that's the only one that wins a prize. It's still the same today. There's one gold medal in each event. There's not two gold medals. There's a silver and there's a bronze. And then there's nothing. If you come in fourth, you were the first of all the losers. You get nothing. So you're going to run it if you've gone through the trouble of training and preparing and coaching and getting ready. You're going to run it like you're going to get the medal. So Paul says that's the way he runs his Christian life. Like one who's after the medal. Do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. Have you ever gone to a track and field event and seen somebody run like the 500 meter and they lollygag? They just kind of skip or run sideways? Or... No, nobody does that. When they run, they run to win. And so Paul says, run in such a way that you may win. You weren't drawn by Christ. You weren't brought into this covenant with him so that you can lollygag through it. You were brought to this Christian thing so that you can run it like you're going to win it. So he says, everybody who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. I remember seeing an interview with, uh, I think it was Ryan Lochte, but it was one of the swimmers. But he was talking about the training regimen that he had gone through and the foods that he had to eat and how many times a day he had to swim. And then he had to put all these lotions and stuff on his body because the chlorine in the pool was drying out his skin. And He was just talking about the toll that it took on his body. But he did it. Because he was playing to win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. And they do it to receive a perishable wreath. In the Olympic Games originally, the winner received, instead of a medal, he received a wreath. Like the type that you might see Nero wearing or something like that. It's, it's not the Greek word diadem. It's not the crown of righteousness that Christ as ruler and 
and the one who reigns from heaven, he gets to wear the diadem. But this is the Stephanos. This is a crown that you win as the, the person who came in first. They're going to give you one of these crowns. And they do it. They live their whole life. They exercise, they eat, they coach, they, they go through the pain, the physical agony, so that they can win a perishable crown. Still true today. The gold medals that they win, the silver medals, the bronze medals, they're not going to be here forever. They're going to wax old. They're ultimately going to burn. But people race for them like it's the most important thing they ever received. They go out of their minds. Gold medal. Then they're on every TV show in the world. Gold medal. I'm the winner. I'm the one who won. And that's a perishable thing. So what if we're talking about a crown? What if we're talking about a reward? What if we're talking about an end that doesn't perish? What if we're talking about eternal things? What if we're talking about eternal life in the presence of a majestic God? What's it worth? Can you run like you want to win that? So he says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I'm not aimlessly running. I'm running with a goal. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Have you ever seen people shadow box? People boxing nobody up there practicing? And then you put them in the ring with somebody who can box and they're down? Because all the practice they've ever had is just boxing with nobody, shadow boxing, boxing the air. Paul says, that's not the way I box. I box like one who's ready to compete. I'm in there to win. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and I make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here's Paul's attitude. If I know that heaven exists, if I know that Christ is real and God's a judge, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure I get there. I'm not going to take it for granted. I'm not just going to assume that it's all going to be okay. Sometimes you have those folks, the, uh, the hyper-Calvinists who will say, well, God chooses some people and he's already chosen them and he's already saving them and it doesn't matter what they do. Paul didn't say that. Paul said, I know I'm saved and since I know that, I'm going to work as hard as I can at it. This is my response to the reality of what God has already done for me. I'm going to preach the gospel. And Paul took a whole lot more beatings than anybody in this room did. Five times beaten with 39 lashes, shipwrecked, day and a night in the deep, stoned outside the gates of Lystra, left for dead, in prison often, hungry often. And he did all of that because he wanted to preach the gospel. So he was in this race to win it. And then he says, now you be that way. I hope if you walk out with nothing else today, you walk out with a renewed fervor that the Bible says, yes, you're saved. Yes, Christ did it all. But your response should reflect 
how much you love him for doing all of that, and that you ought to work as hard as you can toward the advancement of the gospel. You get it? Okay. You only had to preach the world, so the gospel to the whole world, Jews. Well, yes. Can you imagine what the church would be like today if Paul had decided to lollygag? If Paul had decided it's really not important? After one beating, he went, that's good, I'm good. I'm out. It's like a blackjack dealer. I'm good. I'm out. What, what if he had done that? We wouldn't have two-thirds of the New Testament. We wouldn't have the deep theology that we get from Paul. It is because of his commitment to what Christianity was and the preaching of the gospel that today we all can say that we're saved. That process so, brings suffering. And that process brings suffering. Yeah. And it brought suffering to Paul, and it's been bringing suffering to the church ever since. And it's not over yet, but it sure does make heaven look attractive. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.